Okay, we're reading from Luke, chapter 1, verses 1 to 38, and it's on page 1024 in your Bible, if you've got it, the church Bible. Many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who from the first were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. With this in mind, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, I too decided to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things that have been taught. In the time of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah, who belonged to the priestly division of Abijah. His wife, Elizabeth, was also descendant of Aaron. Both of them were righteous in the sight of God, observing all the Lord's commands and decrees blamelessly. But they were childless because Elizabeth was not able to conceive and they were both very old. Once when Zechariah's division was on duty and he was serving as priest before God, He was chosen by lot according to the custom of the priesthood to go into the temple of the Lord and burn incense. When the time came for the burning of incense, all the assembled worshippers were praying outside. Then the angel of the Lord appeared to him standing at the right side of the altar of incense. When Zechariah saw him, he was startled and was gripped with fear. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah. Your prayer has been heard. Your wife, Elizabeth, will bear you a son, and you have to call him John. He will be a joy and a delight to you, and many will rejoice because of his birth, for he will be great in the sight of the Lord. He is never to take wine or other fermented drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even before he is born. He will bring back many of the people of Israel to the Lord their God. He will go on before the Lord in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the parents to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Zechariah asked the angel, How can I be sure of this? I am an old man and my wife is well along in years. The angel said to him, I am Gabriel, I stand in the presence of God and have been sent to speak to you and to tell you this good news. And now you will be silent and not able to speak until the day this happens, because you did not believe my words, which will come true at their appointed time. Meanwhile, the people were waiting for Zechariah and wondering why he stayed so long in the temple. When he came out, he could not speak to them. They realized he had seen a vision in the temple for he was making signs to them but remaining unable to speak. When his time of service was completed, he returned home. After this, his wife Elizabeth became pregnant and for five months remained in seclusion. The Lord has done this for me, she said. In these days he has shown his favour and taken away my disgrace among the people. Now the birth of Jesus foretold. In the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town of Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. 
The virgin's name was Mary. The angel went to her and said, Greetings, you who are highly favoured, the Lord is with you. Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. But the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favour with God, and you will conceive and give birth to a son, and you are to call him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. How will this be, Mary asked the angel, since I am a virgin? The angel answered, The Holy Spirit will come on you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. Even Elizabeth, your relative, is going to have a child in her old age, and she who was said to be unable to conceive is is in a sixth month, for no word of God will ever fail. I am the Lord's servant, Mary answered. May your word be to me be fulfilled. Then the angel left her. I'm really looking forward to this series and looking forward to getting stuck into Luke. Uh, the first nine chapters of Luke's gospel with you. And I, uh, I trust that you'll be able to uh, really push yourself in, re- in thinking about the story of Jesus and, and uh, what he came to do from this amazing account of uh, this uh, Dr. Luke. Uh, let me pray and then we'll get straight into the passage. Heavenly Father, we give you great thanks that uh, we have the privilege of coming together and considering your word, and we can do it with confidence, because you revealed yourself to us in Jesus. Help us uh, today, and over these few weeks, as we look at the Gospel of Luke and see the beginning of Jesus' ministry, that we see the kingdom come, this upside-down kingdom that just is revolutionary. Help us as your people, as followers of the kingdom, over this time, to understand it a little more and to live for the King. Amen. Alrighty, so we're looking at this series on, on, on a new kind of kingdom. And today, the beginning of joy. And I want to just kick it off by asking you, have you ever felt like or seen the world and thought it's upside down? It's the wrong way around. The world isn't the way it should be or it's just a bit... Topsy-turvy. I don't know if you've ever felt like that about the world, um, but I, I certainly do sometimes. Uh, and I thought today, uh, as you know, I'm a very cultured person, I like to get uh, my uh, culture on, show you a bit of art from the 18th century. Uh, this is art called The World Turned Upside Down. I don't know if anyone's ever seen these wood carvings before, but I think they're very clever. I'll show you a few of them. There's quite a few of them, but here are some of the wood carvings. The first one called the old soldier turned nurse, where the soldier is the one who's looking after the baby and it's the nurse who's coming home from war. That is upside down in the 17th century. Or, I like this one, which they get sometimes quite bizarre, (laughs) fishes lords of the creation, where the fish actually fish for men. That's an interesting one. And then this one that's a little bit more intense, but actually is really quite clever. It's my favourite one. The ox turned butcher. 
That's a little upside down, isn't it? The ox turned butcher as the, the ox is got the, the actual butcher strung up and about to, well, I'll leave it there. And the last one going on the same theme, uh, we have, uh, actually this is quite clever too. We have, oh, no singles up there. Oh, what's happened there? Oh, oh, there we go. Um, there we have the roasted cook, where it's the actual bunnies and the chickens that are cooking the chef. The satire, clever wood carvings to depict a world that isn't the way it should be and that it's upside down. Do we think that the world is upside down or is the way it is? Because when we think about kingdoms, we have in our mind the way a kingdom should be. If you're a kingdom, you have the power, the rule and authority and you show it by might and power. What we see in the Gospel of Luke, salvation coming, salvation for a kingdom and this kingdom is a new kind of kingdom. It's a new kind of kingdom that is very different. It's a new kind of kingdom that starts off pointing us towards joy. But a joy because this kingdom is very different and we need to look carefully to see how it is because if we're looking for a mighty, powerful nation that's going to rule with an iron fist, we may miss this kingdom. And so that's what we're going to do over this, uh, uh, over this series as we look at Luke 1 to 9 and today as we kind of get a scope of Luke 1 to 2, the, the, the birth of Jesus and everything that surrounds that. And if you've got the outline there, you can see we've got a little bit of an introduction on, um, on how Luke starts it off and that's why we're going to look at Luke because he gives us this picture of the kingdom so beautifully. But then you see how I've got everything lined up in parallel. And we'll get to that in a moment as we see the birth of John, the Baptist, and the birth of Jesus and how spectacular that parallel actually is. The second point uh, on the outline now I just want you to see is that uh, this is an account you can trust in Luke 1 to 4. Uh, now there's a talk in itself on this and it could take us in many places. I just want to point us towards a little thing this time. Uh, to highlight how Luke starts this letter off. He says, Many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who from the first were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. With this in mind, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, I too decided to write an orderly account for you, most excellent, excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of these things you have been taught. Now, often one of the charges of thinking whether you can believe in Christianity or not is that it's written by uneducated, uh, unwise people that aren't sophisticated and have got no ability to, to be reliable upon. The account of Luke's gospel is, without a shadow of a doubt, a literary masterpiece. And it's undertaken, written carefully by a doctor who was no slouch, who as you read the account has crafted it together, not just with facts. Like if you uh, study something, whatever it is, at school or at uni or at work, you have a manual. When you have a manual, you have the facts listed out. This is what you've got to do, this, 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 and that's it. 
Luke could have written out the facts of the history just like that, but he didn't. He carefully crafted it together so that even in the way that it's written, we get to see the highlight of, of more detail of what Jesus has come to do and what the kingdom is like. And we'll have a little snippet of that today. That's how the whole Bible is often crafted together so beautifully. We cannot say that this is just some um, uh, someone's attempt that cannot be relied upon. He has sought to deal with it from those who have handed it down, who from the first were eyewitnesses and servants of the word, just as it was handed down, he had that in mind, where he carefully investigated everything. And he wrote an orderly account. This isn't just a mishmash of ideas, it's crafted together so you can understand something. And we know because he says to his, to his mate here, Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty, the certainty of the things you have been taught. The goal of Luke is that when it comes to Christianity, his presentation of Jesus is that you can have confidence that he is the king of the new kingdom that you can live for and that goes into all of creation, into all eternity rather. That is his goal. And as we look at that, the first nine chapters, I hope that you can wrestle with that if you're struggling with that. I hope that all of us can actually see we have great confidence. And maybe Luke's gospel will come even more alive to you because you see the depth of, it's great to read verses here and there, but when we read the whole thing and when we see it, God's kingdom comes alive. You see, the more we investigate the reliability, I don't think that's a basis to reject uh, our our uh, God, who is the Lord of all. I'd love to, and, then, and we'll probably do this a little, a little later on um, uh, at Easter time, but I think the problem is society actually thinks it is. The so- society actually thinks that the Bible isn't reliable in any way w- whatsoever. They kind of think it's a little bit like that. That Easter is just one big April Fool's joke that he actually didn't come out of the grave. It's, it's all just one big hoax. Or that it's not real, that it didn't happen. It's just a good story. But if Christianity wants to move forward, we've got to get beyond that. One of God's mighty workers died this week, Billy Graham, 99 years old, who preached the gospel many times all around the world, including Australia in the, in the late 50s, uh, revival broke out and many, many people became Christians. Many, many, many of the leaders, uh, I just know from my context in Sydney, of the leaders that taught me and brought me up, their testimonies were we got converted at Billy Graham Crusades. And But what's interesting has happened, Jen was telling me and reading about, many, many other people have written about him since he's died and saying he was of the devil because he hasn't moved on and he kept on talking about this truth that Jesus died and rose from the dead and that he'll he'll have to be called to account because of it. Because society thinks it's a hoax. That it's not true, it couldn't be true. Actually, I think we have good reasons when we investigate it hard to see that it is reliable. 
One of the things I, I want to encourage you to do is not just to leave that lingering thought there that you can't trust the Bible behind. One example, this is, I suppose a little bit of a side point, is that there are, there's lots of good reasons to see how we can rely, rely on the Bible in all sorts of different ways and we can rely on the testimony of Jesus and that the resurrection is believable, which we'll do at Easter, as you can see there, uh, that will be our banner out the front of a church uh, at the front of the school this year. What what, uh, what you can do is you can think about it more. And this is my current favorite uh, book to do that. It's called Cold Case Christianity. I don't know if any of you heard it. I use it in the life course when we do it. But this is by a guy, um, Warner Wallace, who's become a bit of a, a big uh, apologist now in America. But he was a cold case detective and a raving atheist. And he was very much against Christianity until, let me read to you just the back of it here, where he said, for the first 35 years of his life, Warner Wallace was a devout atheist. After all, how can you believe a claim made about an event in the distant past for which there is a little forensic evidence? Then Wallace realised something. Christianity was a lot like the cold cases he solved as a homicide detective. Cold cases that turned out to have enough evidence, eyewitnesses and records to solve. When Wallace applied his skills as an expert detective to the assertions of the New Testament, he came to a starting realisation. The case for Christianity was as convincing as any case he'd ever worked on as a detective. And I, as I read this book, it's really, really helpful. He goes through all those things that people might say, oh, it's just Chinese whispers to how can we trust the book that's that old and all these kind of things. How can we trust that Luke actually has carefully investigated it and written it out properly? How can we trust the history? He goes all into that, but the book's broken into two parts. He starts off by talking about what you need to be to be a good detective. Uh, let me just pull it out here. He, what you need to be a good detective, and he goes through and says all the things you need to do uh, to do that and then in section two he applies those to the to the gospel to the christianity and examines the evidence and so his chapters on were they really present can we corroborate the evidence was it accurate is there bias and all these other questions that he asks really really helpful now, the point i made there while we're not getting into it as a, as a sum total of our talk today is that if that's a struggle for you uh, i wouldn't want you to Make the assumption that Jesus is not believable because we can't have any confidence in him unless you've really investigated it. Because I think we can have great confidence in the God of the Bible. That's part of what Life Course is about as well. So, what we see in the beginning of this, uh, in the beginning of this, uh, uh, chapter, uh, book in Luke, we see how he starts to beautifully craft it together as he brings out the birth of John and Jesus. Now, if you've got a Bible in front of you and open it up to Luke chapter 1 and 2, if we open it up there, let me just uh, flick to there now, let me show you what I mean. He could have just said, okay, this is what happened to John the Baptist, then Jesus came, this is what he did. But let's just uh, open it up and have a look. Matthew, Mark, Luke. Here we go. See, so we, we can just go from the headings, which actually are pretty helpful here, even though they're not actual God's words, someone helpfully putting in um, titles. We've got the birth of John the Baptist after the introduction we've just read. Uh, that's foretold. Then we've got the birth of Jesus foretold. Uh, then then it comes together with the two pregnant uh, women together in the centre. And then Mary sings a song of joy. And then John's born. Then Zechariah sings a song of joy. And then Jesus is born. 
See, this isn't just somebody who just pick and choose. He's carefully crafted how he's put it together. And what we see is he's crafting it in parallel. As we see what's going on for John and seeing what's going on for Jesus, we get a greater idea of what's about to happen. It's beautifully crafted together. And so you can see that there on the outline as I want to show you how this plays out. You see, first of all, what we see, I just want to point out three things. You know, in two chapters, we're not getting into the depth of this. You could do a whole series on Luke 1 and 2, I reckon. Uh, definitely Luke 1 to 4 over, over many weeks because there's so many great things that come out of it. But what we see here is, first of all, that there was an amazing promise. Not just a good promise, or that would be nice to happen. This promise is just out of the ordinary. It is extraordinary to make this promise. See, the first promise to Zechariah and Elizabeth, who were, who were God-fearing people. In verse 6 of chapter 1, it says they were righteous in the sight of God, and they were childless and very, very old. Having children was beyond them. And they got an extraordinary promise. An extraordinary promise in verse, uh, in verse 11. The angel of the Lord appeared to them, standing at the right side of the altar of incense. When Zechariah saw him, he was startled and was gripped with fear. But the angel said to him, do not be afraid, Zechariah. Your prayer has been heard. Your wife, Elizabeth, will bear you a son and you are to call him John. He will be a joy and a delight to you and many will rejoice because of his birth. They've just been promised that in their old age, where it's not possible anymore, they can have a child. The shame of not being able to have a child was overwhelming. Anyone who's desperate to have a child, it's painful and heartbreaking. And in this culture and society, it was their shame. And they've just been promised by God from his messenger, the angel. It's not going to always be that way. It's an extraordinary promise. But you know what's even more extraordinary about this promise? It's harking us back to something that you've read if you're reading the Bible in a year with us, all of you that are doing it, that you've read about. You know, uh, when the world got messed up and God focused in on a family and he made a promise to a family, who was the head of that family? Who did he talk to? Abraham. What was the problem with Abraham and his wife? They were old and they were... God's made a promise to Abraham that the whole solution to the rejection of me will be fixed up by your descendants and they were barren and it was impossible. He makes the promises in chapter 12 of Genesis, that key section, and then in 15, uh, we see that he tells them, you're going to have the, you think you can't have a kid, I'm telling you it will happen. He makes a promise that seems impossible, the promise of being barren makes you, the promise, not promise of being barren, the promise of having the barrenness taken away means that there will be a solution to the problem humanity has found themselves in. And now, at the beginning of the time, we hark back to that key moment in a parallel moment where Zechariah and Elizabeth are going through the same pain and anguish and are being told, you will have a child. And not only that, this child will be the one who prepares the way that we'll get to in a moment. Beautiful picture. And 
parallel to the birth of John, we have the amazing promise given to Mary. Verse 26 and 23. Verse 26 to 33, sorry. Let me read that to you. In the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. The virgin's name was Mary. The angel went to her and said, Greetings, you who are highly favoured. The Lord is with you. Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. But the angel said to her, Do not be afraid. Mary, you have found favour with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son and you are to call him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. Now, it's quite extraordinary to make a promise to a very old barren couple. It's another thing altogether to make a promise to a young woman who isn't even married, who has never had sex, you will have a child without that happening. And it will be from God. This is an extraordinary, way, way bigger, amazing promise that you are going to have a child and it is going to be the saviour. The promise of someone from Abraham, from that barren um, relationship, is now going to be coming from you, Mary. He is, as we just read there, we great and be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord will give him the throne of his father, David, who is a descendant of Abraham. These promises were made. So much time has gone on. There's this silence between the Old Testament and the New Testament for centuries. And here is a promise and it's so unexpected, so strange, so different. And it is amazing. And Luke is highlighting how extraordinary it is. And so we have the birth of the prophet and his message. Have a look in verse 14 of chapter 1. He will be a joy and delight to you and many will rejoice because of his birth. Verse 15, he will be great in the sight of the Lord. He is never to take wine or other fermented drink and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even before he is born. He will bring back many of the people of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will go on before the Lord in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the parents to, the, to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous. To make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Not only was it just a promise that they will have the joy of a child, they have been given the extraordinary privilege and joy to know their son is great. He is the one bestowed with the job of saying, the king of forever is coming and you need to get ready. As Elijah was a prophet of the past, this guy will come in the line of him. 
And so if we're thinking that, as we jump in next week and see a little bit of of John, what do we expect? Well, if he's preparing the way, we find out what that message is, repentance and forgiveness, as we'll see next week. And we see this is a great, great exciting moment as the way is being prepared. He's born... And his father prophesies. Look at verse uh, 68. Praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, because he has come to his people and redeemed them. He has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. He's coming. He's the horn of salvation. It's just about to come. He's prophesying the way. So with that expectation, what's the parallel? Well, maybe, just maybe now, this actual Messiah will come. And we get to chapter 2, verse 1. And we see the birth of the king. A king that's been prepared for, he brings salvation. He will be prepared for when he starts his ministry and his ministry will be about saving people into his forever kingdom. And we see those famous Christmas words in verse 10 to 12. The angel said, don't be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. Today in the town of David, a saviour has been born to you. He is the Messiah. The Lord. This will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. He is the Messiah, the Lord, wrapped in cloths in a manger. This is weird. It's out of the expected. The king and powerful who reign and the one whose rule is over all of them and forever is going into a backwater town in a strange place and is going to be born in such humble circumstances. But he's the saviour. How is this going to happen is where we're heading. The more and more we look into Luke's gospel, the more and more we get greater insight into what the kingdom looks like and how the Saviour brings us into that kingdom and then how we live in light of that. Beautiful parallel of a messenger and then his guy, his king, his Saviour comes. So what can we draw out of these parallels? Well, it's no surprise that we see in both accounts that the family members, the parents, are joyful. Zechariah and Elizabeth were joyful in the Lord and Zechariah sung, as I, as I just mentioned, and Mary's famous song as well as she rejoices in her Saviour. Let me read to you Zechariah again, those words that I just mentioned, just a little bit of his... Um, uh, prophecy. In verse 67, it said, He was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied. Praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, because He has come to His people and redeemed them. He knows that the promise of Abraham that someone was going to come, and that the Exodus, that famous story in their history, is that they need to be pulled out of slavery, and here it is. 
He is so longing for what's happening that he casts his mind back to the history of his people so he can truly long and look forward to what's about to happen. He remembers mercy. He remembers the covenant in verse 72. He remembers what God is like. When salvation is coming, Zechariah remembers all the promises, all of that build up. Not with all knowledge, but longing for this salvation to come that they are now on the cusp of. And when Jesus is born, well, in response to knowing that he's going to be born, what does Mary do? She sings. She sings with joy. She sings with joy because she has some idea that she has been bestowed with such an extraordinary privilege by God. Verse 46 in Mary's, Mary's song. My soul glorifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. The Savior is here. And she is joyful that Mary praises God because salvation, the longing of the King that these people need, that have been waiting for their Messiah has come and she's so wrapped up in it. Imagine being Mary and thinking, how, what is going on? I was just this, the other day, I was just this humble person with nothing. And now, my son is the Lord. She remembers God's mercy also. See the beautiful parallel of these chapters and what we get out of it? You see, it's not just that they are joyful. What oozes throughout the whole section is joy as the shepherds and the angels uh, sing praise to God and, and praise and worship and honour because the Saviour has come. Elizabeth, she sings for joy. Even John, before he's born, gets excited. It's a picture of the response to this news is of joy because this is what humanity has been waiting for and even if they haven't been waiting it's what they need it's a magnificent picture we need to think a little bit more about how do we um i said they're um longing for a new kingdom to wrap i think it's better to say looking for a new kingdom i just want to point out four things in light of this beautiful uh parallel that we have in this passage i think what we want to take away from today is that we need to constantly remind ourselves to expect the unexpected from our god and when things seem odd or strange to us not jump to rejection of that or that can't be right but to go god's plans are so much bigger and better let me see if i can understand more and more what he's done this is not like anything else it is an upside down kingdom now the image there is the kingdom I mean, they're sick, they're poor, they're feeble, they're beggars, they're lepers. They are who brings in the kingdom of God. 
It's totally different to the picture of the Roman Empire where Caesar would be at the front with all his generals and the hordes of armies and actually, who is actually the one in power? It's upside down. And when we see this upside down kingdom, we have a glorious, glorious understanding that God is doing something that goes beyond our understanding. Look for the unexpected in this kingdom. Secondly, we do that by finding it in history. Luke's start is very helpful. As he said, everything's been fulfilled amongst us. And what he does brilliantly as well, in Luke chapter uh, 24, uh, which, which I love going to many times, he says, Jesus says, after he's resurrected, everything has been fulfilled in all the, you know, the books of the law and the Psalms. And he says, everything has been fulfilled. He starts off by saying people have tried to explain things uh, that have been fulfilled amongst us. He writes an orderly account and finishes with Jesus saying, all of the Old Old Testament, Israel's life, all the prophecies have been fulfilled in me. So what matters to Christians is not just jumping into the Bible now and then for, for a little catchphrase, but to love the history of God's people and in reading it and investigating it and wrestling with it so we see the glory of the king. And so when we, uh, later in the Yannick Term 3, do Joshua, the book of Joshua, we read it wanting to understand the whole story and seeing how it fits into the big picture of Jesus and how this moment in history continues on with showing us how great Jesus is. And so we become passionate about a weird time in history for us. We want to be diligent and history matters. And we want people to have confidence. We need to have confidence. We don't want to have our faith based on a blind faith leap in the dark. Because that's not what God has wanted for us. He doesn't just kind of give us an inkling that he's real and then just close your eyes and jump. He gives us reason to believe that Jesus died and rose from the dead and we can have life in him. So history matters and we seek to understand it in the beautiful way that he's revealed it to us. The third thing, well as we go through Luke 1 to 9 and as we've seen a little moment today, we need to find what the king is like. We've started today as the promised Messiah. He's been prepared for the way. He's coming in humble circumstances. He's going to turn everything upside down. And he is the king and saviour. We want to constantly come back to what's this king like? What's his saving going to be like? What's he going to do? How is it going to look? What's this kingdom? How is it going to come into place? And are they actually going to rise up some people to take down the Romans in Israel? And what's this all going to look like? We need to see what this king and saviour is like and what his plans actually are. And lastly, surely we need to have that sense of what I think this whole narrative starts off with. With such great expectation and news comes such great joy. Joy in the Lord and rejoicing in our Saviour with praise and thanksgiving. He is Lord. Jesus is Lord. He is the one who saves us. 
That is how we actually have our hearts and minds and emotions stirred today. Because we've seen that if he is this Lord, we give thanks and praise him for it. Singing is not just something we do because it's what we do or we're told to. It's an outward expression of joy. Our inward most thoughts and being should be of thankfulness to God. Is he your saviour? That's how you should think of it. And if you're not sure where you are today, this series is fantastic. Whenever you're wondering where you are with God, you read the stories of Jesus. Reading them as a whole and wrestling with them is so helpful. Keep going back to him and reading it. And, and uh, chat with me if you want to wrestle with it more. Can I truly trust in this? Can I truly believe in this? But for all of us, as we started today with those silly upside-down pictures, there's nothing, nothing silly about an upside-down kingdom that looks like that. When Jesus goes before us and says, all the weak will be the powerful. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we give you great thanks. With absolute thankfulness that you have brought Jesus into the world. We thank you that you make amazing promises that cannot be achieved except that you are the sovereign Lord of all. Thank you for John who prepares the way and as we'll see next week brings a message of repentance and forgiveness. We thank you that he was just the messenger because the king has come, our Lord. Help us to desperately be passionate about your word and your spirit like Zechariah before, like Mary will fill us with joy and thankfulness for what he has done for us. We thank you that Jesus is indeed Lord. Amen.